Welcome to Matter of Fat, a body positive podcast with Midwest sensibilities. Hi, I'm Kat Palavoda, a local fat feminist, shop owner, and I now live in the retro cam filter on Instagram stories. It's bringing me the beach vibes I will not otherwise be getting this summer. <laughs> I'm joined by my co-host and producer, Soraya Bogani. Hi, I'm Soraya. I'm a fat multiracial Minneapolitan millennial who has learned to love watching the clouds. It's the simple things, I guess. On Matter of Fat, we're here to talk about the cultural politics of fat liberation with a Midwest perspective. Let's kick it off with the, the fat, fat dish. dish. It's time for the fat dish where we share or dish about what's going on with us. Where should we start with this? I mean, like maybe the last episode would make the most sense. Uh, So last time we interviewed Kachina and she suggested some romance novels, which to be honest are more of Kat's thing, but I ended up listening to two of them whilst I was packing up my apartment to move. Um, and? I didn't hate it. (laughs) I didn't hate it. And that's the best we can really get. Honestly, from you, that is high praise. A glowing review. Yes, yes. So Kachina shared the recommendation (laughs) for Beach Read by Emily Henry, and it's an enemies into lovers trope, but like very literary. And I ended up identifying with the gruff uh, curmudgeonly character more than the main protagonist. So yeah, I don't know if that was (laughs) the goal with this read, but that's how I took it. Honestly, I love that. And I really liked Beach Read too. The style of writing is a little bit different than like what we usually get with romance, but I liked it a lot. And Soraya, I know you like this too, because like you were texting me your thoughts when dramatic things happened. There was like some real energy and excitement around this, to be sure. (laughs) Yes, there was. I won't lie. Uh, I think like when you start to get invested in the characters and there's like a little reveal, it just gets so good. I really don't want to give away too much, but there was this level of reality of how people Um, as teenagers or college age just don't know how to act and then you see that character growth and emotional development and it's a level of realism that I I haven't found in the limited romance novels that I've read or um, maybe like tried to read before okay wow shots fired (laughs) Saraya no shots no shots I will say Kachina said something last episode that kind of stuck with me and got me thinking so like Romance novels themselves aren't inherently good or bad, and there's a good case for them, I think, just like any genre. Um, I also listened to Well Met, which was another recommendation Kachina suggested, and it was entertaining, but it's just, like, not the story or characters that appeal to me. I mean, like, Cat. Yeah? Yeah, when we were talking about how sci-fi fantasy isn't a genre you like, but then we went over how there are many romance novels that you don't like and like a genre unto itself isn't a monolith and yeah I'm sure there'd be something that you would like especially considering the variety of writers and modern takes on well-loved tropes today you're so right and actually to that end I just finished listening to Julie Murphy's Faith Taking Flight (gasps) it's young adult and also fantasy so like you know not what I usually gravitate toward But I wanted to read it because I love a fat protagonist. I really like Julie and her work. And this book is set in Minnesota. Yeah, I love Julie. And um, wasn't Cake mentioned in it? Yes, my chef was mentioned in it. I'm still like, oh my gosh. I just like can't get over how exciting that is. Um, So yes, for all those reasons, I wanted to read it, even though like it wasn't my usual type of book. Oh, and I really, really liked it. I love the character of Faith and like kind of the mystery and suspense of the book. There was even a little teenage romance. Well, you got your romance right there. That's that's why. <laughs> uh, but I think it's just a good story of like a good story of any kind of genre is at its core about human experience. And like if you resonate with that experience, you'll like it. Yeah. Okay. And there is just like one more that I have to mention because you're right, even though or even within like the romance genre, I am picky. Um because it's just like a, a lot that I don't really respond well to. Uh, but when I like something, I like it. And I've gushed all over the internet about this already, but I would like to gush further about another rom-com read that I could not get enough of. As someone who has seen you go on and on about this on your Instagram story, the shop's Instagram, and matter of fat, and like probably many of you out there, and I know where this is going. I mean, Kat, you have an empire of content sharing platforms. Tell us, what is the book? (laughs) One to watch. 
Which one? Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or? Okay, Soraya, <laughs> shut it certified bad at social. It, okay, speaking of certified bad, can we just talk for a moment about how you put a full Google Doc <laughs> link in Comic Sans on our Instagram story? <laughs> it's so I'm, bad. I am so pleased with myself right now. Okay, so <laughs> for those of you who have no idea what Kat is talking about, we started doing more Instagram stories from each of us and the assistants. So my day is Tuesday. And this last Tuesday, I was so focused on moving that I forgot to post until 11.47 p.m. <laughs> and I really, like, I had content ready to go. I wanted to pub uh, our friend Michael's QTPOC book club, uh, but I didn't have a good image or Instagram post to share. So I... <laughs> I literally put the link as text for a Google Doc, a sign up in the story <laughs> in so Comic Sans. Bad. It was really bad. I was like very tired and I also knew that it was a trash move. But I also using comic I used Comic Sans because like I don't have access to that font on my regular plebe stories. So I was really it was a lot. I was trying out a lot of things. I also immediately acknowledged uh the ridiculous yeah. choice and solidified my brand as bad at social media. I know <laughs> what I'm doing. I know what I'm about. And so does everyone else who's doing great, sweetie. Like the daily posts have been <laughs> chef's kiss. Lindsay, Aaron, and Cindy have been sharing some really great content and thoughts. Um, but yeah, no, I acknowledge. I acknowledge and I'm, I'm very pleased with myself. Um, I've been okay. shaking my head so hard through this entire explanation of yours. It's like a mix between like the blinking eye gif and me shaking my head here. But yes. We're living up to your certified bad (laughs) Yes. It's it's like the best kind of content. We're still thinking about it. It's still in our hearts. Okay. 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 Back to one to watch. Let's get back on track. Still in our hearts. Okay. Um, Yes. uh, I will also add that like the Instagram stories have been very, very fun. Um, And yes, I am not referring to social media, but referring to USA Today's best-selling book, One to Watch by Kate Stamen London. I adored this book. And like, oh my God, I loved it so much. This is one of my favorite books in recent memory. The main character is a fat influencer who blogs a scathing critique about the bachelor's lack of representation and then winds up being the first fat bachelorette. And of course, it's not like called The Bachelor. It's like, you know, a fictitious thing, but we all know it's The Bachelor. Mm-hmm. I'm here for a bachelor critique always. I never really got into the show, which is a decidedly unpopular opinion. Um, but anyways, okay, tell me more about this book. Also same, and for many reasons, one of which is that there are no fat people on it. It had so much of what I was looking for in a novel. It was fun and honest and included some social justice commentary, and it was full of current pop culture references such a fave (laughs) the best part for me was that like love and dating as a plus size woman was really front and center to the story you know and I will say like in lots of romance novels we often get what feels just like a lot of like insecure or anxious internal dialogue and I'm not a fan of it I don't want to hear about how a character doesn't think they're good enough or doesn't think they're pretty enough or like kind of second guessing every interaction that's not fun for me and I I think mostly because I don't find it very relatable, but it was just like different with one to watch because there was a lot of this like internal dialogue, but something was different about like how I responded to it. I think it was really relatable because B, the main character, was expressing feelings about dating and love as a plus size woman in ways that like really resonated with things that I do or have experienced um, it, it wasn't just like airing insecurities in a self-deprecating way. It was, I don't know, more nuanced than that. I just was really here for it. And might I add, the audiobook was expertly narrated. <laughs> it was so, 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 so well done. So gush, 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 a uh, word Soraya doesn't like, but I think is very appropriate for this. Um, uh, I'm gushing. I love the book and, and I promise I'm done now. <laughs> <laughs> Soraya, tell the people about what all this packing has been about. 
Yeah. So as I mentioned, I was packing because I just moved apartments. Um, I love my neighborhood in Minneapolis, so I didn't leave it. And this is just like kind of a big deal because I was at my previous place for almost five years. And I just love the old brownstone I was living in. It was the perfect place for my mid to late 20s. And I'll, I'll miss it so much. It's just like such a weird odd experience when your home all of a sudden transforms into empty rooms like very dusty empty rooms like <laughs> I was just astounded at how much dust there is it was disgusting anyways I really like the new place it's so so new it's the antithesis of the prior one and I am cat I am living in the future like okay so before I would you know, maybe not order things online because there was a there's a chance that the package would get to your door and then maybe not make it in the door by like a well-meaning neighbor who was able to get it into the locked area of the yeah, building. Yeah, like my place. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like now though, I get an email when a package is delivered and I wander down to this wall of lockers and I scan the barcode on the email and a door magically pops open with your package inside. Oh my gosh, you are, okay, you are living in the future. The future is now. The future is now, and it's just so astounding to me. It's so nice, and um, yeah, I just, I'm enjoying it so much. Also, there's just more windows and trees, and it's just beautiful and so peaceful, and I want everyone to come over and enjoy it with me, yeah. but, you know, Corona says otherwise, so um, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Which also kind of leads me to still not being fully unpacked yet. <laughs> so all of my Zoom calls look like I've chosen a background of an empty room stacked with cardboard <laughs> boxes. It's like a joke background. Um, oh, also, though, shout out to podcast assistant Erin and previous guest for hooking me up with some moving boxes due to her previous home move. And they came in real clutch. So, Oh, I yeah. love that. Um, yeah, and I saw the box background on our multiple Zooms, um, including the one the other night for the potluck. Oh, my God. Yeah, it really does look like a joke background. But yes, the potluck. It was so nice to see some of y'all there and talk about the Nods interview with Sabrina Strings and her research in Fearing the Black Body. I was living for that conversation. It was such a highlight. Yes, it was so good. Such a lovely convo. And honestly, I can't wait till we do our next one. In fact, we should share that our next podluck will be on Thursday, August 27th from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Time. So at the time of us recording this, we're still deciding which episode to go with to talk about. So just like pop over to our website, www.matteroffatpod.com slash events. Uh, don't worry, I'll probably paste it into an Instagram story. Oh, Lordy. You won't be able to click it to link no. it, but you'll see oh the full God. address. Um, but go over oh. there. Don't worry, Tuesdays are my days. Just gear up, everybody. Okay, so RSVP and learn about what podcast episode we're going to discuss as a matter of fact. Um, on the website. I can't wait. Okay. And you know, our podluck night was full of a lot of shared Zooms. I got to see that sweet, sweet box background multiple times. Uh-huh. Because um, after we wrapped up our podluck, we headed over to our first 2020-2021 New Leaders Council Twin City board meeting. Soraya, your first NLC board meeting. Oh my gosh. The energy was so great. And like in the time of COVID-19, you need to balance balance out like multiple hours of video conversations with like such good, good energy. And I got that. Um, yeah, I don't know. We've talked about it before, but uh, like this last year I was part of the 2020 New Leaders Council leadership cohort and I got so much out of it. I would encourage anyone interested in progressive leadership uh, or someone who's interested in finding a network of amazing people or wanting to learn more about politics, policy, nonprofits, communication, just like so much to check out the New Leaders Council Twin Cities chapter online. Uh, applications for the 2021 cohort are live and there are information sessions going on to Instagram is where I've seen those most widely shared and uh, applications are due early September. So make sure to look into it if you're interested. Yes, yes, yes. I co-sign all of that. Um, and I think I speak for both of us. Like, feel free to get in touch with us if you would like, if we could be helpful to you if you're considering applying. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I'm bad at 
social media. So like it might be rough to get in touch with me, but if you email us at the podcast or just uh, send us a message on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, we'll be happy to talk with you about it. Our engagement with NLC Twin Cities frequently pops up here in the Fat Dish because Soraya's role as a 2020 fellow and my role as co-curriculum chair were just like such big parts of our year last year. Um, And now we're both on the board. So I think this like NLC energy is only going to get stronger. It has been a big part of our lives. And one of the things I've enjoyed the most about my NLC experience so far is the relationships I've been able to build. Um, In fact, our interview is with one of those folks. Ooh, well, you know what? It sounds like it's time to get into it. We're excited to share our interview with Alex Jacks. We both know Alex through our involvement with the NLC Twin Cities chapter. This past year, I got to work alongside Alex in our shared board role of curriculum co-chairs, basically planning and facilitating the 2020 Institute. Oh, and fun fact, Soraya, we, so you, me, and Alex were all in the same room one time before we all knew each other. Um, Alex was at the workshop that Sonali Rashatwar did at Cake last year, like I guess maybe like a year and a half ago. Uh, I think that's actually where I met Alex, but you hadn't met him yet, right? Oh my gosh, that's such a small, small world. And then we interviewed Sonali right after that. Yeah, okay. Small world, rad world, fat world. Alex, we're so excited that you're with us here today. I am so honored and excited to be here. We'd like to start how we always do, um, which is asking you to tell us your story as a matter of fat. Well, I am a fat European descent white queer living in Minneapolis. Um, I am male passing or cis passing. I'm super tall. I'm 6'2", and I have a, a beard. Um, I use he, him pronouns, but all pronouns are welcome. And as I've grown into my fatness as an adult, especially, I've also found myself growing into my queerness. Uh, And those two things right now feel super inextricably linked for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I typically call myself a genderqueer gay man, which might feel paradoxical to people, but feels right for me right now. Um, And when I sort of think about my story from that typical beginning point, when I'm asked like where I grew up, it's always kind of a tricky question for me to answer. Um, I basically grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, um, though my mom and dad were divorced and the house I lived in with my mom and stepdad was in a town called Hobart, Wisconsin, which is actually within the United Tribal Nation Reservation. Um, so it is literally to this day, like a growing development of white owned homes and businesses built on like stolen, stolen land, like re-stolen mm-hmm. land. Um, and so I encourage everybody to read up on the like ongoing sovereignty and boundary lawsuits between the village and the tribe. Hobart has like a super long history of acting outside of established tribal law and outside of the interests of the United people. Um, And so when I talk about where I come from, I always make sure to include that. So anyway, abolished Hobart. um, (laughs) And that's where our house was. Um, And then I attended school in a, a sort of a third locale in a rural school district in a small Polish Catholic farm town of 3000 people about 25 minutes away from that house. Um, So lots of different experiences and lots of different spaces um, as a kid. And when I think about um, those experiences as a student, I um, can remember the first time I was called chubby. It was by a peer of mine. um, And we were in the line for recess uh, in like first or second grade. Um, And I don't think until that point I had ever really thought about my body like that before. But immediately when I was called chubby, I was just like overcome with shame. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like clearly had been like conditioned and realized that like being chubby should make me feel bad. Um, and so I think, you know, from then on throughout my childhood, I, I think I always just knew that I was the fat kid or the chubby kid and that like shame carried through like that entire time. Because I think once that label and shame is stuck on, it's hard to get off. Like goo gone doesn't work for that shit. You know, it's just like becomes a part of, um, 
becomes a part of you. Um, and, and so even as like my body changed and my fatness sort of waxed and waned, I was always the chubby one or, or I always thought I had like 10 or 20 pounds to lose. Um, and so while that experience was happening internally for me, there was always like a new diet happening around me in our house. Like we were, we were on the South beach diet or the Jenny Craig diet or Atkins, like the 17 day diet. I don't know, like skinny beauties are us like whatever. Like I just, you know, there's, I don't know. Um, and my mom even brought me with her to tops, um, which is like similar to a 12 step program for weight loss is something that I can like equate it to. Um, but it was me in elementary school. I think I was in like fourth grade and a bunch of women um, who were all there talking about like weight loss and their lifelong quote unquote struggle to like maintain their shape or thinness. Um, and in my house, there was, you know, lots of t- talk, as you can imagine, um, about good foods versus bad foods and the fat free train and the sugar free train and I don't think anyone ever forced me to go on diets, but it was definitely encouraged. And I think because I I carried that label and that shame um, of like considering myself the fat kid, I was always like, yep, this is just something that I need to do to be healthy and loved and attractive and okay. Um, And like in reality, I was all of those things the whole time. Um, I think that's something that I'm still trying to internalize and remind myself of today. Like I'm healthy and loved and attractive and okay. Um, And I remember in high school at my thinnest, my thinnest like ever in my life. um, If you look at pictures, you see like a straight sized thin person. Um, But my doctor at the time was like, we really need to talk about losing some weight before college. And I was like, Mm. wow, she's right. I'm so fat and like unhealthy. Um, And like what I really just needed at that time was someone to talk with me, not about freaking weight loss, but about how to survive high school in this like racist and homophobic town, you know? Yeah. Um, So, you know, high school, it was generally like rough for me. I was um, sort of forced out of the closet when I was 15 and like before and throughout that time experienced um, frankly, a lot of abuse from peers and from adults and teachers Um, And it's sort of, it sort of felt like the few supportive teachers I did have took this, like, don't ask, don't tell approach, like, oh, maybe you wouldn't be, you know, experiencing this harassment and bullying if you would just like tone it down, or, you know, like, don't say the things that you're saying, and you want to attract all this attention. Yeah. Um, But what I did have in high school was um, this like safety in the arts classrooms um, and in like theater and music compared to the other aspects of schools, of school rather. Um, And, you know, these are the places where I felt the safest and most affirmed um, and music gave me and still does give me a huge purpose and outlet. Um, And I think as a student, I experienced it as like a vehicle for vulnerability and um, just learning about the human experience. And I was also like much better at music than my peers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And just like found, yeah, just found a lot of safety in in a community of peers and had, you know, a ton of friends and a ton of really positive experiences in school too. Um, And, you know, I think like while music sort of on one hand became this place to put sort of this perfectionist energy that I'm sure I learned and absorbed from diet culture and like trying to find affirmation as a queer kid. It also like generated some of the most incredible experiences in my life at that point and still continues to do so. Um, And so I was inspired by some really great teachers uh, to enter into the profession of vocal music teaching myself So I went off to college and I think college presented me with this, for the first time, this feeling of like freedom to make my own decisions about a lot of stuff. Um, And, you know, certainly about like how to nourish my body and what foods to choose. Um, And I did not approach college in any regard with the sense of like, 
control or um, deprivation. Like I was all about the experiences, the friends, the parties, the food. Like I just went all in in college and had um, a really great time and put on a lot of a lot of weight um, really quickly. And that was always extremely triggering. And those feelings of shame grew and grew and grew um, in my early 20s. And I, when I left college and entered uh, teaching and was a professional for the first time, I sought bariatric surgery twice. And mm. looking back on that, I am so, so grateful that uh, the barriers that were there that at the time I was extremely angry about were there to prevent me from making that choice. Um, because in the subsequent years, I have learned so much about, um, about fatness, about fat justice and activism. And honestly, in large part, thanks to you two, which is uh, a reason why I am so honored to be here. Um, and, you know, have just been uh, enjoying these, this local and national, uh, conversation and like, frankly, this budding movement toward fat liberation. Um, and, you know, still like seeing a therapist about all of this baggage from all of that shame for years and years and years. But, uh, I'm finally, you know, comfortable and confident calling myself a super fat queer and just taking up that space. Yes. Thank you so much, Alex. Um, appreciate you. I mean, we've known you through New Leaders Council, and I've learned so much from you. And getting this insight into your life and this vulnerability that you've shared with us is just really meaningful. So thank you for feeling comfortable to share that with our audience as well. Yeah. Um, And so you mentioned too, like you have these skills as an educator, your background is in K through 12 education, and now you work with educators we would love to hear more about your thoughts and experiences in education in the Midwest um, and, and just like what is most poignant for you to share with us and our audience. Yeah. So I mentioned that I, I was inspired to become an educator because of really great teachers in my life, teachers who uh, knew how to foster community and connection and safety in a classroom. Um, and so when I entered the the profession, I really looked to those mentors and models um, to model my practice um, in my classroom. And when I entered the classroom uh, and, and moved from, you know, Wisconsin for the first time to this metropolitan area um, and began teaching, I quickly learned about Minnesota's, one of Minnesota's best kept secrets. And that is that our school system, contrary to what I think so many of us have heard and believed for a long time, our school system is not working. It is not working for all kids equally. And in fact, kids of color um, do do not have access to the type of quality education that um, most white students do in the state of Minnesota. And when presented with that knowledge, I joined our district's equity team and began working with a cohort of teachers on uh, changing practices and policies in our district to uh, close the opportunity gap. And I remember entering um, into one of those meetings and looking at some statistics about uh, teachers of color and uh, realizing that I, at that moment, was not teaching with one person of color um, mm. on our team. So we know that if a student even has one teacher of color in their elementary experience, their chances of graduation, of staying in the classroom um, are profoundly um, uh, higher. Um, and so that was a place where we started. And we also were realizing that the um, disproportionality in, um, in discipline practices um, was a huge problem in our district, that students mm -hmm. of color were much more likely to be sent out of the room on referral or suspension or even expulsion than their white peers. And as a group, when we decided to sort of advocate for the implementation of these recommendations to make this right, we came up against a lot of systemic barriers whether it was uh, the district policy, um, the mindset of other teachers, or this like institutional bias um, 
it was extremely frustrating. Um, and I decided at that point and got involved with a few community groups that um, I wanted to step out of the classroom and organize other teachers who were connected around this belief that Minnesota must do better for our students. Um, and also because I believe that there are teachers currently in the classroom that need to be leading on these issues and that um, teachers on the ground know what's best for their students and to elevate their voices, these anti-racist, equity-minded, student-centered teachers, to elevate their voices to all levels of decision-making is the way that we can make really sweeping and transformational change for kids. Um, and was really inspired by by this idea, and so uh, transitioned out of the classroom into what I currently do, which is just that. Um, and so I um, currently, as you mentioned, work with teachers. Um, we get them involved in researching and writing policy uh, and then train them on implementation and advocacy practices at whatever level uh, makes sense to um, to advocate for those policies and with a real eye toward training these teachers to maybe even run for office one day to become those decision makers and those leaders um, to again make that make that transformational change for kids. Wow. I love that. Thank you so much for for sharing that and speaking on that, Alex. And that kind of ties into something else we want to talk about, um, which is, you know, you're actively engaged in anti-racist work and, and learning around anti-racism. And I'm totally going to uh, steal, or I guess I'm, I'm uh, the following prompt is a modified version or is inspired by something that Amani brought to Institute for one of our trainings earlier this year. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to know, like, as a white person committed to racial justice, um, what is something that you think we need? to stop? What is something you think we need to start? And what is something you think we need to continue? Oh, there's so much. And I think um, I'm absolutely in this learning space as well. Um, I think for me, what comes to mind when when thinking about what to stop is performative allyship, which is a term that is uh, like in the um, in the conversation a lot right now. I think a lot of people, when they think about performative allyship, in the co- is it's like in the context of reshares on social media posts. Um, but I also think about it as knowing what to say and when to say it um, to like demonstrate that you're woke or that you're one of the quote unquote good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that for for so many white people. Um, that moment when we say something that sounds woke um, feels rewarding. Like we're, we're given immediate feedback, but actually like grinding against the dominant force forces of like racism and oppression is not rewarding at all. And in fact, it'll, it'll beat you up. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think like white liberals have gotten really good at like demonstrating that we understand the problem um, but stop short of actually working to bring justice or when we're asked to give something up like safety or money or notoriety or whatever, um, we sort of seize up and get defensive and hope that someone else will just do it. Um, and I think, you know, like it or not, we're all conditioned uh, to be like little soldiers for whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this like white gaze, I think, you know, it's sort of like diet culture. And actually, I think that they're sort of both the same thing. But this like white gaze is staring us down and rewarding us when we make the right moves in order to uphold the status quo. And I think it takes work and intentionality and vulnerability to get comfortable in like doing the work, but also not getting those rewards anymore. So stop the performative allyship, I would say something that I, I think... Also for me, that performative allyship shows up in ways that I'm not even aware of. And so um, I think that brings me to my start, which is to point out those things that we're not aware of uh, to Mm -hmm. other white people and to do so by like focusing on our network of influence. Um, I think to be more strategic, especially, and I don't know a lot about social media and like the algorithms or whatever that is, but what I do know is that I see a lot of posts that I agree with and they're posted by people that share a lot of my same points of views. And so I think we need to be a little bit more strategic about um, seeing uh, or finding um, groups of people for, to to go and talk to about this stuff, to point out what they're not aware of. Um, And I think that work is political. I think that work 
means facing and entering into spaces of power and discomfort um, to disrupt that um, and to make way for for the conversation if the conversation isn't there yet. Um, and I, I think to keep doing, um, I think we need to keep electing anti-racist leaders. Um, Ibram X. Kendi uh, wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist, and is it really focuses on anti-racist policy as sort of um, the place to uh, center efforts to make sweeping anti-racist change. And we know that policy is created largely by elected leaders. Um, and so to be seeking out those uh, folks who uh, bring that mindset. So I think we need to keep uh, finding those leaders and lifting them up. And I am heartened by the fact that that's happening at multiple levels. I see it happening locally in the Twin Cities. I see it happening at the state level and nationwide. Um, and I think that's work that we've we've got to keep doing. We need to keep uh, throwing our resources of time, uh, money, and advocacy behind these anti-racist leaders. Mm. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I think that speaks to a feeling of listlessness or impotency that people might have about where they need to start putting their energy into lots of different avenues with social change. Mm -hmm. Um, If you, I know that there's not a a silver bullet for this situation. It's like you said, you're going to get beat up by the work and it needs to be done. But what would be one piece of advice or one thing that you might suggest to help people pick a direction or for them to start to feel empowered to take action? Oh, yeah, it's hard to pick one thing. And um, I think that I could probably use some advice on this too. Okay. Um, <laughs> Appreciate you know, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, for me, it's like, it has been get a good therapist that is trauma and oppression informed and who has a health at every size lens and like confront the barriers from our past and from our personal experiences that get in the way of bringing, um, bringing our, uh, our energy and, uh, and focus to this work. And also that bring our, our best relational selves to this work to build and grow in community. I think so often, um, for me, it has been, past experiences and traumas that lead me feeling like it's difficult to decenter my own narrative um, in my activism. And that's a, those are really dangerous waters to wade into. And I own that I've been there. And it has been like a good therapist that has helped me address some experiences from uh, from my past and also like current experiences um, that sort of get in the way for from get in the way of my ability to build relationships and lean into those relationships and community to uh, lift up the people who are doing this work and to keep moving it forward. Acknowledging that you can't do this type of work if you keep focusing yourself. I think that's where we see a lot of white exceptionalism, white fragility, all of that coming to a center, um, especially if you hold that white identity. So oh, thank you so much, Alex. This is really important information. I am so honored. I know I keep saying this, but I'm so honored to get to hear this from you. It's not a normal conversation. You don't really get to hear this in any any person you engage with. Um, so this is slightly linked to the last question, um, but what is one thing that you may suggest based on your experience with the pandemic right now that has brought you a lot of joy? Oh, okay. Well, I feel like my experience like most people's during all of this has had a lot of peaks and valleys and (laughs) (laughs) I started quarantine like baking bread and I even bought this like cross stitch hand embroidery kit and like these basic things to like try to do that like we're inspired by other people on the internet doing and just like I think trying to find like I don't know, a new thing to do. And it was fun, but it's like not really me. And it just, you know, kind of went away. But summer hit. And oh, the other thing that we've been doing, my partner and I, mm-hmm. I think we're on our 18th season of Sur- of, of Survivor since like March 20th. <laughs> yes. 18. That reality TV in there. 18. 
<laughs> I'm like proud and also slightly embarrassed to share it. Um, I have to tell you, Survivor, while ha- it has its many problems and like the United States, like glaring flaws are very present in this series, I think is the greatest game ever designed. Um, I love watching all of the social dynamics play out. Um, I I don't know. I just love it. Highly recommend if you haven't, like me, haven't watched it since, uh, you know, for many years. And it got more radical, right? Because, like, my besties are really into Survivor. And they let me know that, like, some of the most recent episodes, they've been, it's, like, a lot more, like, conversations about race and, like, more, like, social issues being openly discussed. Yes. From what I'm seeing on the internet, that is true. We have Hulu. We're, we're watching it on Hulu. And I think the most recent season is from, like, I don't know, eight plus years ago. Oh, God. Um, okay. But, yes, from what I'm seeing on the internet, that is true. And I'm seeing seeing petitions since the murder of George Floyd uh, for Survivor to bring even more intentionality to that conversation. Since yes. it is a show where, like, social dynamics are sort of at the, you know, it's, it's the lifeblood of the entertainment mm-hmm. and of the game. Um, so loving, loving that. And also for the first time, we're starting a garden. And that has oh. been a practice of, like embracing imperfection um and we have a little flower garden and some herbs and you know some things are thriving some things are dying i was introduced to japanese beetles which are currently ravaging my uh, impatience and you know i'm absolutely at war with them little buggers (laughs) but it's been fun so those are a few things we've been up to oh i love that i love that because uh yeah i think if you want to capture the U.S., go back to early days of reality TV. And For Survivor real. is such a capsule of that. That's so interesting. And then I love your poor impatience. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, it's that. okay. If you have, if anyone out there has any tips on ridding our yard of Japanese beetles, please hit me up. Well, we will share your social media as long as you're okay with that, Alex. And people can truly hit you up and let you know the secrets they might have to alleviating this problem. Hit me up in those DMs. (laughs) Wonderful. Okay. Well, Alex, this is the point where we like to say thank you for telling your story. As As a matter matter of fact. That was such a great conversation. Alex was such a conscientious educator throughout the NLC Leadership Institute, so it was an absolute pleasure to share a tiny insight to that experience with you all and learn more than I could have dreamed. I'm so happy we could talk with Alex here on Matter of Fat. I loved working alongside him last year. He just has so much wisdom to share and also is the most fun. Uh, And now it's time for... Dirt and Discourse. It's time for the Dirt and Discourse. This is where we dive into the excitement and discomfort around relevant pop and cultural happenings. Last summer, we said wear whatever you want, and we're here to say that that's still true and also different. And that's what we want to discuss today. What does wearing what you want look like when you're truly not dressing for others or pandemic prohibiting social situations? We're talking about how being home 25-8 has changed our personal style and habits in a way that feels worthy of some discourse. Oh my gosh, 25-8. I love it. Okay, so <laughs> let's... I love it. It's 110%. It's like, you know, more, but... You... Always it. constant. Okay. <laughs> so let's start with clothes. So much fat stuff starts with fashion, so why break away from that? So I've never really been a person to have like oodles of outfits. Uh, that's where Kat and I kind of differ. But in the pandemic, I've really curated a capsule wardrobe uh, completely unplanned. So it's not necessarily seasonal, but I have the same few pieces that are like the most comfortable, the best color combos and just like a very chill overall vibe. So some great earth tone dresses and cardigans and soft fabrics and leggings. Have, it's like truly like I'm abating the pandemic panic by choosing clothing that I would I, I mean I wouldn't have normally worn with such consistency pre-pandemic but it's just very soothing to me um let's see what else also like no shoes ever please I've got like two pairs I've worn this whole time and I'm loving it some sneakies and just some burks that's all I need 
Okay, I love this capsule, but no shoes? Like, not even slippers or house shoes or things around the house? House shoes? No footloose and fancy free over here, bruh. <laughs> okay. I guess, I don't know, I still wear Brooks even when I'm home. I think a few years ago, like, I transitioned from being more comfortable barefoot to more comfortable in supportive shoes. Uh, so, in summary, I am my mother. I love your mom. I love your mom. Okay, but what has fashion and clothing looked like for you, Kat? I guess I find myself really prioritizing comfort, you know? Like, so for me, this looks like wearing even more athleisure than normal. And even if I'm wearing an actual outfit, there is a 9 out of 10 chance that it's just like something thrown over bike shorts and a sports bra. Uh, I also wear compression socks a lot in the summer because my ankles and feet get swollen pretty easily. Something that's like more pronounced in summer, especially if I can't go swimming as often as I'd like. So I find myself being less interested in like making my outfit work with them and instead just like wearing them all the time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like I will say, I think for me, clothing and even makeup to some extent is like helpful in terms of routine or like feeling like myself. I notice like if I'm feeling crabby or in a bit of a funk, which we've talked about the emotional roller coaster that is the pandemic. Um, (laughs) It does help me if I put on like a cute outfit and earrings and do my makeup. I find that most days if I leave the house or like go on Zoom, I do put makeup on, even if it's just like BB cream, brow gel, mascara. I mean, okay, like why we wear makeup could be a whole dirt and discourse in and of itself. And honestly, like it could probably be a dissertation topic. It's very complicated and complex. But what I do know is that for me, there's something about wearing makeup that just like makes me feel good. So I do it. Mm, yeah. Like I've never been a makeup heavy person, but my skincare game has definitely elevated. Ooh. And it, it's kind of like what you were talking about. It's more about the ritual of it, I think. Just having some time to cleanse, apply toner, put, like choose a moisturizer is just so, so good. And then like slathering sunscreen all over it. I just feel more like put together, even though there's probably no visual difference for others. Yeah, I totally get that. You know, it's really interesting to consider like the things we do for other people versus just for ourselves. And one of those things, like I realize I love smelling good even when I'm not spending time with anyone but myself. So I still wear perfume most days. um, And I always put on like good smelling lotion before bed. You do love a good lotion and a smell. (laughs) God. Remember when you licked that buddy scrub cube from the FabFitFun box? You said it had smelled so good, and it did. I mean, like, good enough to lick, I guess. Okay, it smelled like candy. Is this a public service? <laughs> Don't eat candy-flavored items. Okay. Jessica Simpson's lip gloss and lotions are not on the shelves still. Okay, oh I didn't eat it. I did lick it, but it smelled no, you so didn't. good. I just loved it. <laughs> and maybe this all sounds like very contradictory and because I do always want to smell good. But I noticed like with, um, you know, the idea of like what I do for myself versus for other people, my like natural tendencies in terms of hygiene and grooming are like a lot more laissez-faire when I'm not around other people. I say that because, like, I'm not really a super frequent showerer or hair washer anyway, but, like, I've been pushing it very just farther and farther as the days go by. (laughs) So I think I shower the same or even more these days, to be honest. Um, But I think it was different at the onset of the pandemic. So I tried the whole no shampoo thing for March and April and just like I really committed. I committed hard. It didn't work for me. And I think maybe I over-indexed on the oily hair. However, (laughs) taking that time to really assess what made me and my hair feel better was great. And I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have had the time or have been as comfortable with trying that out um, if I was going into the office every day or like going out socially or just like the Zoom filter. You know, you can't get that zoom in look on your hair follicles. So it worked (laughs) out. So (laughs) also like I paint my nails now regularly. What's that about? I I truly don't know. I used to be pretty hit or miss with the press on manicures that Kat actually got me into and regular manicures. But now I'm finding it so enjoyable to like pick a color and allow enough time for that stuff to dry. I probably just wasn't patient enough before. Um, And this is for no one but me. And it just sparks so much joy when I see that color throughout the day and it just feels really lovely. I love that. I love that for you. And honestly, like the time it's like there's just maybe like a little more time to sit and dry and and like kind of maybe the ritual of it all again too, you know? I like that. Yeah. 
Uh, oh, something else um, related to this is that, like, I still do remove my body hair, but I am happy to let it get much longer than I might normally if I was seeing people more often. Um, and this is actually where, like, face face mask fashion has been really nice. I'm way less self-conscious about hair on my lip or my chin because, you know, it is just all covered up whenever I'm interacting with anyone. Oh, my gosh. Face mask fashion, baby. Um Okay, so I think my accumulation of cloth masks corresponds to my realization that I'll be in this pandemic for a hot minute. Because, uh, like, at first I was like, oh, no, I have two. That's fine. No. And now I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> that was early days. Now I'm at one for each day of the week. And it feels so weird to go outside not wearing one. Like, I would never. And, uh, okay, so I got on a little bit of a tangent there. But... I will say like related to wearing things and, you know, bodies being different. I I will say that my body has definitely changed with a more sedentary schedule with pandemic. It just has. I also feel like there's been more time to be mindful of the choices I'm making or how I'm spending my time, like longer walks outside or being aware of how much time is spent looking at a screen. And it's the first time in my life where my body size change hasn't elicited the same amount of concern or shame because I can see why it's happening. And I also understand that my body is keeping me healthy and allowing me to do my best getting through this. So, Yeah, you know, mine probably has too, but I I wouldn't really know because I'm just wearing bike shorts exclusively. And <laughs> honestly, like it's something I'm not trying to spend a lot of time focusing on. Like you, I'm just happy I'm making it through all of this. Yeah. And there you have it. I mean, while, you know, wear what you want 2020 versus wear what you want 2019 feels a little different, it's still just as true as ever. All right. That's it. That was the episode. This is the outro. Oh, it's here. <laughs> uh, hope you'll join us for our next podluck. To learn more on RSVP, visit our website, matteroffatpod.com. You'll find podluck info on our events page under the Connect tab in our menu. You'll also find show notes, transcripts, and lots more on our website. Please subscribe, and it truly, really helps to rate and review the podcast wherever you catch Matter of Fat. And find us on social media. Like Soraya mentioned earlier, we're doing some really fun stuff with our Instagram stories. <laughs> the whole team is involved, so there's a chance to hear from all of us. I'm really building my quote-unquote certified bad at social media brand out here, y'all. So, like, be on <laughs> the lookout for that. And also catch Kat and the assistants as they share some really lovely, insightful things. We're at Matter of Fat Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there so you can stay in touch till next time when we're back for another episode of Matter, Matter of Fat. Fat.